If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, one that's thriving, interactive, you know that either you're growing in that relationship or you're declining in that relationship. Just like a plant has to have certain things in order for it to grow, nutrients, sunshine, and water, so as a disciple of Jesus Christ, there are certain things that are essential for us to grow as well. And that's what the Committed to Christ series and study is all about. So if you're reading along, if you happen to have missed either the first two weeks, we have uh, the commitment cards for each appropriate week at the uh, table outside, and you can pick those up, look at those, and fill it out and complete it and submit it as well, along with what we do today. Two weeks ago, we focused on prayer, and we concentrated on the simplicity of prayer. We, we mentioned that the Lord's Prayer has 50 one-syllable words in it. Last Sunday, Pastor Aaron focused on the importance of Bible study, but he made the critical point that we don't study the Bible just for knowledge's sake, but we study it in order for something to be produced, to be a product that is given to the world on behalf of Jesus Christ. There should be a way that applies to our daily lives. Today, we focus upon the value of worship for our discipleship. Now, you can talk to any pastor, talk to any church consultant, and they'll tell you there's a phenomenon taking place in the last few years, and that's the fact that people are going to church less. Now, let me separate this from the people that have given up on the church, the people that have rejected the church. Uh, we call those, the researchers call those the nuns. They're the people, if you ask them in a survey uh, what the religious affiliation will be, they'll simply just say none, and that is growing. But that's not what we're talking about today. That, that's another issue altogether. What we're focusing on is the fact that people that are committed followers of Jesus Christ, people that would say, that's my church, I attend such and such church, or I'm a member of, are going to church less often. Now, it's hard to get really hard data about this because surveyors are taking note what they call the halo effect, that when you ask people, how often they go to church, they tend to say a lot more than they actually do. I guess that's true with a lot of research. Uh, a lot of the research shows that on average about 37 to 39% of people consider themselves regular churchgoers. But we also have some data that says that on any given Sunday, there's only 17% of Americans in a, in a pew or in a chair in a worship space on any given Sunday. Matter of fact, if you use the standard of regular as being three Sundays out of every eight, that's kind of being generous, isn't it? That's still only 23 to 25% of Americans would fit in that category. 23 to 25%. What that means in practical terms is people that used to go four times a month are going more on average like three times a month. People that used to go twice a month are now going more like once a month. The days in which you had a, a core of people that were there 50 out of 52 weeks seems to have passed and may not be coming back. Carrie Newoff shares the reasons for that. And I want to go through this list. It's kind of lengthy, but I think it might be one that you identify with in some way and helps us kind of get a handle on this issue. And the first reality is that greater affluence leads to less worship attendance. Money gives people options. An interesting thing about 
the middle class, is, we are told, is shrinking, which is a problem in and of itself. But it's shrinking not just because there's more people in the poorer class, the lower class, there's more people in the upper class. Disposable income in the United States is at an all-time high. There is more money available to people, and when you have money, there are more options. There's more technology options, more travel options, more options for our kids. And affluence has that ability. It's so subtle, but it can move us away from that sense of our dependence upon God, our need for God. I mean, even Jesus himself, what did he say? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Another issue is higher focus on kids' activities. If you've got kids are now in sports, and that seems to be a growing thing, and it's not just sports, it's activities like band and music and dance and all these other things, and they're requiring 100% commitment. And often that means you're traveling on weekends. And when church or the priority of kids comes, church always loses out. And I understand how hard that is. Because if your child doesn't go, that means they don't get to participate or sometimes they don't have the chance to excel. There's more travel taking place, both for business and for leisure. There's more and more travel for leisure, even if it's just camping or going off the lake on the weekend. There are more blended and single-parent families, and with the custody schedules, that makes it much more difficult to fit in that regular routine. Our Orange Express experiences that as they're here every other weekend. And it makes the challenge even for parents when the kids are not with them. There are more online options. There are more churches that are streaming the worship services. Uh, we have ours available, and I'm pleased to hear that more and more people are taking advantage. When they're not here, they go and watch the sermon, at least on, on the weekend, so they can stay up with what's going on. But that does lead to less physical attendance. And there's that cultural disappearance of guilt. I've never been a big one to believe in guilt as motivation, but you know, as a preacher sometimes, you kind of miss that thing, you know? I think I still feel, does anybody else still feel that guilt a little bit? But let me tell you, that number gets less and less all the time. And then there's self-directed spirituality. I mean, how many of us who have a child that's sick, before you call the doctor, you get online and you try to diagnose that child yourself? You try to save yourself a trip to the doctor, and then when you figure out you haven't quite got it stopped, you go to the doctor and you tell them what you think it is, and that drives physicians nuts. And how many of us, when we buy a car, we research it online over and over, so when we go, we know what we should be paying. Well, the same thing is happening with our spirituality for Better or for worse, people don't look to leaders to find their direction in life. And especially when many consider the church as another institution, they tend to not get excited about the organization of it. And then there's the failure to see a direct benefit. And, and that's one that I think is on us as a church. People make time for the things that they value. So it's so important that we make sure that whatever we offer is relevant and critical and meets the needs of those persons. And if we feel we're doing a good a job at that, then we need to do a better job of explaining why it's relevant and important to their lives. We've got to make it clear so that it'll be valued. 
And then here's another one that churches need to rethink. Sometimes churches get focused on attendance. Uh, just because someone shows up on Sunday doesn't necessarily mean that they're engaged. And we need to think in terms of engagement. How are we challenging people and bringing about transformation in their lives in every possible way that's, that's available? And I'll say a little bit more about that near the end. And then the last thing to consider is that our society right now is going through a massive cultural shift. And if you, ha if you haven't noticed that, then you've got your head in the sand. There are so many changes taking place. The things, the issues that people are dealing with are so radically different. And if we don't stay focused and understand the needs of the people that the world brings to us, then we will lose their presence. Now, I'm not offering these as excuses. These are just the way things are. And that means that we as disciples and as a church have to be much more intentional and strategic about everything we do if we're going to ensure that there's spiritual growth in our lives and especially in the lives of our children and grandchildren. But you know, we're not the first ones that have this issue. If you're paying attention to the Hebrews passage, you notice that the first century church started to have this problem, especially the longer they got away from when Jesus died and was resurrected. And especially with that anticipation that Christ could be coming back any day, they began to lose that fire that they had. We can read between the lines in the Hebrews passage, and we're pretty clear that the book of Hebrews was written somewhere between 80 and 96 AD. The circumstances, the context fit the reign of the emperor Domitian, who's the emperor of Rome during that time and had initiated some sporadic persecution in given areas. And we have lots of evidence that Christians had to go underground. We got symbols that they used to mark their secret hiding places where they did gather to worship. We've got uh, antidotes, stories of communications between Roman governors and the emperor about asking advice on what they should do with these Christians who will not bow down and worship the emperor. Christians were marked. And that meant the loss of their livelihood, the loss of their job. It meant sometimes prison. It meant sometimes even death. And so there were reasons. In spite of that, the writer of Hebrews says, don't stop meeting together, which some people have gotten into the habit of doing. But we can learn from this writer of Hebrews. Because I want you to notice the method he uses in encourage them to make sure they continue to meet. He doesn't use guilt. He doesn't declare that God demands it. If we want to appease God, we've got to be showing up. These are the words that he uses. It is to hold on to hope. It is to remember the promises of God. Worship is to spark love and good deeds in one another. It is to encourage one another. Now, I think that's a different approach than sometimes we ourselves bring to worship. Sometimes we, we come about what we can get out of it. Uh, we see worship as something to consume. It's where we come and get our batteries re-energized. And certainly that is true, but when you listen to the writer of Hebrews, he's suggesting that worship is a place to give. It's not about what we don't get out of it or do get out of it is that each of us have a piece of God with us that we bring an energy a spirit and when we share it with one another then God does something very special 
among us. Those are very good reasons to come together, and it's very real. I mentioned last Sunday that some of our staff had gone to Orlando, Florida to serve at the Give Kids the World, and I mentioned that that one of the highlights was seeing a child that got to experience Halloween for the first time. And it was something about that experience that was so valuable for us. I've had people ask me, well, isn't that kind of a downer to go there? And it's like, well, no, not really, because during that week, that's a week that those families get to forget about their illness. They get to focus on just being happy. Matter of fact, the, the theme that's on all the T-shirts for Give Kids the World is hope, where happiness inspires hope. And on Monday night, we were, our whole group was part of the group that helped put on the Halloween party, which they tend to do every Monday night. They gathered us together, and at Give Kids the World, they, they train you so well. They take... They block out 20 to 30 minutes to make sure they walk through everything during this particular activity that you do and that you don't do, how you touch and how you don't touch. And and they'd share the spirit, the purpose of what's behind what we're trying to do with this particular activity. So we had at that training three or four staff people. We had about 18 to 20 volunteers, of which we were part of, and they broke down every little thing that had to take place. And there was a lot going on at this Halloween party. They'd have dancing. They had to have somebody to help get costumes on. They had uh, the blow-up archery game, and they had masks that you could make and some other crafts. And they had also six stations where you handed out candy. Now, they gave me the most important job, of course, something that took a lot of deep theological training, So I put on my costume. I went as a guy with hair. Is that all right? And they put me on the first cauldron of candy. So that meant they came in the door, they got their trick-or-treat bag, and then they came right to my station. So I had a heavy responsibility. I had to make sure that they got in the spirit of things. And so I got into it. I put my hat on. And, of course, most of them didn't know I was bald, so they weren't sure what to think. But I handed out candy, and I wouldn't hand it out unless they said to me those secret words, trick or treat, right? And when they did, I handed a piece, two or three. We were very generous. And I'd say, happy Halloween, and the spirit would start. And so it continued throughout that evening. Let me tell you, by the end of the evening, it was a wonderful event. Everybody walked out with smiles. All the costumes they had that night had been donated, so they got to wear them home. It was a great evening. And so then the staff pulled us back together and talked us through. They always debriefed the experience. And they let us know that there was one child there that they had somehow learned had never, ever celebrated Halloween, had never, ever gotten to trick-or-treat. And the night before, one of the costume characters, Miss Mary, went to tuck that child in, and when they did, they presented that child with a costume to help them get into that spirit. I'll tell you, that was pretty touching to be a part of that. And here's what they said to us. They said, now, us staff people, we knew the nuts and bolts of how this was going to go this evening, but you brought the energy. You're the ones that made this a special occasion. And she was right. It, it made me think of, if you've ever been on a Emmaus walk, it had that kind of spirit to it. 
And I thought, you know, that's what worship is about. Worship is about each one of us bringing what God has given to us into this space together, and we're called to share it with one another. And when we do, God creates something very unique and special that we take back with us wherever we go. That's what worship is about. So how can we make that value of worship grow in ourselves where we want to maybe make that one more time we try to get to church in spite of all the world throws at us, in spite of everything that gets in the way of our spiritual practices, we do live in a different world. And so what we need to think about is engagement. How can we be engaged when we come to worship? How can we engage others? So here's a few things to think about. We have to make sure our worship experiences are as relevant, vibrant, and meeting the needs of an ever-changing world. We need to make better use of technology. We, we already do share our messages on our website, but maybe we need to think about streaming. So if you're out of town, you could tune in at 9.30 and worship with us in spirit, even though you might be separated by many, many miles. We need to perhaps think about some of our discipleship resources being offered in interactive ways on our website. Our Orange Express already has lots of resources for parents to go and and reinforce what is learned here during this hour. So we need to take advantage of that, and perhaps we need to do more. Perhaps you need to help us figure out what was, would be helpful to you. And we need to realize that people who are not raised in church might discover the church community, not first in worship, but through some engagement with the community. Perhaps like our our Janus concert that we did last Christmas, or when we go out and help out Noblesville Main Street, or somebody going to Teeter first, that will often be the first introduction that somebody has to Jesus Christ in this day and age. And the last thing is the spirit we all bring to worship whenever we do come. That when you're here, you're fully here. You're not just in and out, but you realize you've got a responsibility to the people surrounding you. If you got your commitment card, let's take a look at it. There's some fine print. I don't know if you can read it. I have to get a certain distance from my eyes to read it. But let me share what it says. I will prepare the day before so that I can arrive at worship without last-minute rushing. You hear that balcony? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I will warmly greet those who sit around me. I will surround my friends and family with worship. Through worship, I will seek to find strength, power, and direction to face the week. That's a great spirit. And I think our Romans passage says almost the same thing. Let's read it together. So brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly worship. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. This time I invite you to pull out that commitment card and look over the choices and 
and check what makes sense to you. And as some music's being played, you're invited to come forward and place that in these offering boxes as we recommit ourselves to vibrant, powerful worship.